I have this really nice long opening. It's really funny and stuff. I'm skipping that. Just kidding, I don't. You guys know better than that. I do not write jokes. That is not a thing I could do. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Today we're going to be focusing on verses 11 and 12, where Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we're going to, go to, we're going to look at these uh, two verses in some detail, but first I want us to see the main connection uh, these two verses have with the preceding two verses, the verses we looked at last week, verses 9 and 10, two weeks ago. Last week, Dan preached. Thank you, Dan, if you're out there somewhere. Uh, Peter tells us, Christians, two very important things in verses 9 and 10, if you remember. First, he tells us who we truly are, our identity. We're no longer sinners, but we, uh, but in the beginning of verse 9, he declares, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Then at the end of verse 10, he adds, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were, had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Who we are is a chosen race chosen out of all the human races to receive God's mercy and to be God's people. Who we are is a royal priesthood. We stand before God in relationship with God, ministering as priests to God. Who we are is a holy nation. We who receive the mercy of God by the sacrifice of His Son are made holy in God's sight. And who we are is a people for his own possession. We belong to God. We were bought with a price, and therefore God will never leave us or forsake us. Again, we are his people. So that summarizes our identity as Christians, our identity in Christ. And then right in the middle of who we are, at the end of verse 9, Peter tells us what we're to do. This is our purpose. This is your purpose. If you don't know, here it is. Our identity leads to our purpose. You are who God has made and declared you to be, that you may proclaim the excellencies of of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Our purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of the one who saves us, the one who sanctifies us. Our purpose is to glorify God for who He is and for what He's done. As the psalmist commands, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. And so the question comes, how do we do that? How do we, they in Peter's day and us in our day, living as exiles in this world, how do we proclaim the excellencies of our Lord and Savior? Well, that's the connection to our passage for today. Notice at the end of verse 12, Peter again points to our purpose. They may see your good deeds and glorify God. In verse 9, you're told that you are who you are, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You are who you are so that you can proclaim the glory of God. 
And then in verses 11 and 12, Peter tells us how that happens in our lives. How do you declare His excellencies? How do you glorify God? How do we share the greatness of God with sinners in a sinful world? Well, this is how. And what we find is that verse 11 and 12 are an introduction to how we're to glorify God. When we get to chapter 3, we'll find this familiar verse with regards to declaring His excellencies. Verse 15, chapter 3, Peter writes, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. This verse is often quoted in the context of defending or sharing your faith, right? Telling people about Jesus. So it's important for us to be prepared, uh, Peter says, be prepared to answer questions about this hope, this hope you have in Christ. But along with that, even prior to being prepared to answer questions about your hope, you must demonstrate the hope that you have. People will not ask you about your hope if they don't see hope. So before we can defend our faith by verbally declaring the excellencies of God, before we can answer questions about our hope, we must first show our hope by who we are and by how we live. Or put another way, we're to declare the excellencies of God by who we are and how we live in order that we might declare His excellencies with our words. And how we do that is outlined in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Peter begins with who you are. If you're, if you're going to glorify God, you must abide in your true identity. That's our first point. That is, you must live based on who you are, who you truly are, who God has declared you to be. You must stand firm in who God has called you, declared you to be. As I've said several times, who you are leads to what you do. Your identity leads to your purpose. And so to fulfill your purpose of glorifying God, I I, want to convince you of that. That's your purpose. You must abide in your true identity. And at the beginning of verse 11, Peter reminds us of that identity. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... We're going to see what he's urging us to, but let's just deal with what he calls us. Peter opened his letter, if you remember, verse 1, by addressing his readers as elect exiles. Now he adds to that by calling them, by calling us beloved and sojourners. Beloved means one who is well-loved. You are one who is well-loved. And certainly Peter is speaking of himself As an apostle of Christ, he loves his brothers and sisters in Christ. But more than Peter's love, this word reflects God's love. Because God loves you, your identity is beloved. Beloved, loved by God, is the perfect word to summarize what Peter has told us about ourselves. Not just in verses 9 and 10, which we looked at two weeks ago and which I summarized for you. Peter has encouraged us by telling us many things that God has done to demonstrate his love for us. That's sort of the beginning of his letter. That's what he did. Let me me hit some highlights to remind us. 
Verse 1, chapter 1, God chose you. You are elect. Verse 1, chapter 3, God, by His mercy, has caused you to be born again. Verse 4, chapter 1, God will give you an internal inheritance. Verse 9, chapter 1, God saved your soul. Verse 18, chapter 1, God ransomed you from your futile ways. Verse 22, chapter 1, God purified your soul. Then in chapter 2, verse 5, God is building you up as a spiritual house. In both verses 5 and 9, God has made you a holy royal priesthood. And finally, in verses 9 and 10, God chose you as his possession and his people, which all point to the fact that you are his beloved. Abide, dwell, live. Know deep in your soul, your heart of hearts, that you are loved by God. Know his great love, and for his glory, share that great love with those around you. And at the same time, abide in the fact that you are sojourners and exiles. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Peter calls, says, I urge you, uh, which means what follows, which is going to be how to glorify God, is motivated not just by the fact that God loves us, but by the fact that we are sojourners, exiles. We've talked about being exiles. It's part of Peter's opening description of his readers, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. To be an exile is to be a foreigner, a foreigner in a land, a stranger, a pilgrim. In some ways, these students that Mike and Kathy are, are, have talked about, they're a little bit of exiles. I mean, they haven't been exiled. They're, they're coming here willingly, but you see what I mean. And here Peter adds the similar notion of being a sojourner. This includes the idea of being in exile, but it also adds the idea of dwelling in a foreign land. That might be a better description of these students that are coming to us. The point Peter is making is that this world is not our home. We're passing through. But right now we're dwelling. This is where we are. This is where we're living. This may be a foreign land, but we're living in it. The fact is, we're living in this world. Some people wonder why, when you become a Christian, why doesn't God just, why can't we all just be Enoch? Remember him? He walked with God and was not. That would be nice, but God has a different thing going. We're not of this world, but we must remain for a time in this world. And while we're in this world, we have a purpose to fulfill. This is why we're not taken out. I mean, taken away, not taken out. Like, Remember, your identity as a beloved sojourner and exile leads to your purpose, which is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. To bring God glory. So as ones who are loved by God, but who live in this world, we are the perfect. We're in the perfect place to declare His excellencies. If we weren't here, we couldn't be declaring His excellencies, right? We're the perfect people to be His ambassadors 
if you will, to this world to show and tell the world what it means to be loved by God. What does it mean to be beloved? So when someone asks you, and I hope they do, why are you different? Why are you strange? Why are you not like other people? How can you have so much hope in a world that seems to be, and maybe is, falling apart? A world that's filled with difficulty and pain and suffering and trials at every turn? You can say without hesitation, because this world is not my home. I'm a sojourner. I'm just passing through. I'm an exile, and God, who loves me, has an eternal home prepared for me. So the difficulties of this world uh, do not affect me the same way they affect you. I hope that's true. The difficulties of this world should not affect the children of God as they affect the people of this world. My hope is not in this world. It's in the God who loves me and died for me and promises me eternal life in His presence. And then you can uh, tell them all that God has done for you and all that God offers to do for them. But this is not possible unless you're abiding in your identity. If you don't embrace your identity as a, a beloved sojourner, then you'll remain firmly connected to this world. Your hope will be based not on God, but on your earthly circumstances. And you'll be just like everybody else. No one will ask you about your hope, and God will not be glorified by your life. However, if you embrace your identity, you're freed from the tyranny of earthly circumstances, which is so different than how those in this world live. And people will come to you asking about your hope, and you'll be given the opportunity to glorify God. So first, God is glorified when we abide in our true identity. Also, abiding in our true identity impacts the way we live. If you know deep down in your heart who you are, that you're loved by God, that you're just passing through this world, then you'll behave differently. And the way you live will glorify God. So, so how are we who abide in our identity to live in such a way that God is glorified? Well, beginning in verse 11, continuing through this letter, Peter tells us, this is how the beloved sojourning exiles are to live in this world in such a way that God is glorified. Verse 11 and 12 provides this gateway into living for the glory of God. In these verses, Peter gives two uh, uh, general instructions, general principles. His instructions encompass both what we're not to do and what we are to do. Flowing out of our identity, this is how we're to live for the glory of God. First, which is the second point, we are to abstain from fleshly passions. Peter says, as those who are loved by God, as those who live in but do not belong to this world, as those whose purpose it is to glorify God, there are some things that, that you must not do. There are some things you must abstain from, refrain from, avoid at all costs, maybe. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Notice Peter isn't politely asking or suggesting 
or even commanding. He's urging, beseeching, exhorting. He's exhorting these beloved sojourning exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. It's as as if he's saying, hey guys, giving into the passions of the flesh is not compatible with who you are. This world and its fleshly passions are, are, are not simpatico, not compatible with those who are loved by God and whose home is not in this world. You're a sojourner and an exile. Your true identity is found in your relationship with God who loves you, not in your connection to this world. You don't belong to this world anymore. As the uh, bluegrass gospel song goes, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. So based on who you are, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, what are the passions of the flesh? Well, I think most of us have a pretty good idea. But just to be clear and to understand what Peter has in mind, we need to look back at what he wrote in verses, verse, chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. These passions of the flesh are the same as the passions of your former ignorance. They're the things that you formerly, before you were born again, uh, did not refrain from. They are the fleshly or carnal appetites. What are they? Well, some examples. Peter gives in chapter 2. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, Peter lists some of these fleshly passions. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. These are the things that beloved sojourners put away. These are the sins for which we abstain. They are the attributes and actions and a way of life in which we once walked in ignorance. And they do not belong in our lives anymore. Now, to further understand what Peter means, we can also look forward at what he says in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. So, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human... And that, that flesh is just the body that you're here. It's not, it's not the same as fleshly passions. It's just the body. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time... That is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And just so you know, all all of these lists are just uh, examples. They're not the full thing. Well, if I can avoid all of those, I'm good. And I can do this one. No. Peter calls us to renounce all these things as well as anything that's a passion of the flesh. These are the activities that we participated in when we were still in this world. When the only purpose we understood was our own temporal pleasures. But now our purpose has changed. Our purpose is to glorify God. Once you were not His people, now you are His people. Now your purpose is to glorify Him. And to do that, we must abstain from these human fleshly passions and instead pursue the will of God. Because giving into fleshly passions is not only destructive to us, as we will see, as Peter says, 
But it shows the world and it shows God that we don't really believe that something far greater than human passions, earthly pleasures, even exists. When we give in to our fleshly passions, we're saying that these these things, these passions, are more fulfilling than God. When we give in to these passions, we're, we're giving them glory instead of God. Or you could say, for the believer, giving in to our fleshly passions takes away from God's glory. Not that God becomes less glorious, but by our sinful actions, His glory is veiled in us. We see this in the life of David. When David uh, failed to abstain from his fleshly passion, when he saw Bathsheba and his flesh desired her, and he gave in to that, even after he was confronted and with his sin and he repented, the prophet Nathan declared, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. That word scorned means spurned or blasphemed, showed contempt for. David's sin and, and our sin shows our utter contempt for God and His glory. That's why Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our sin is not just disobedience to God, it's falling short. It's a failure to glorify God as we should. It's a failure to live our purpose. It's it's saying that in this moment, this fleshly passion is greater to me than God. So when we fail to abstain from our fleshly passions, we scorn, we show contempt for God and His glory. And not only that, Peter adds, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter says there is a relationship between what we do in this body and what happens to our soul. Literally, The human fleshly passions are said to be serving as soldiers against our soul. They're fighting men, and and they intend to rob you of your true identity. They intend to keep you connected to this world. Their ultimate goal is to make you ineffective for God's kingdom and God's glory. So first, bringing glory to God means abiding in your identity and abstaining from the passions of the flesh. It means living as a sojourner, battling the fleshly passions of this world. It means living as one who is loved by God, calling out to Him for help in overcoming and abstaining from fleshly passions. But that's just the beginning. That's sort of the prerequisite, if you will, to glorifying God. If you do that, then, then maybe you're not detracting from God's glory, but if that's all you do, maybe you're not really participating in God's glory. Because that's not where Peter ends. That's just, like I said, the beginning. If we truly desire to glorify God, it's not enough just to avoid fleshly passions, which I think is what a lot of Christians think the Christian life is. If I can just not do that thing, I'm good. It's not enough to not do nothing. Wait. It's not enough to stop doing something. 
Peter continues and says, for God's glory, we must do something. We must accomplish good deeds. To those who are beloved by God, to those who are sojourners and exiles in this world, to those who abstain from the passions of the flesh, in verse 12, Peter writes, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our lives are to be filled with good deeds. The honorable conduct that we are to maintain among the Gentiles are our good deeds. We're to act honorably. As gen, uh, here, Gentiles is referring to the people of this world, the ethnos, those who have yet to trust in Christ, those who are outside of Christ. So we're called to honorable, right, or virtuous, uh, good conduct, which is nothing less than doing good deeds. Living the Christian life in such a way that God is glorified is not just a matter of abstaining from sin. It's a life filled with doing good deeds. Now, unfortunately, in evangelical Protestantism, which is what you're part of in case you didn't know, good deeds often get a bad rap. Often we talk about good deeds uh, only in the context of earning our salvation, we say that you cannot, you are not saved by your good deeds, your good works, but by faith alone. As Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Amen? It's in this context that we usually talk about our good works. And the result is often that good works are downplayed in our faith. But we need to be clear that the New Testament does not downplay good works. Instead, it teaches that good works should flow naturally out of who God has made us to be in Christ Jesus. This would be seen clearly if we didn't stop at verse 9 when quoting from Ephesians chapter 2 and instead included verse 10, which states... For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith alone, but we're saved for a purpose, and that purpose includes good works. We are created, we're recreated in Christ for good works. That's what we're to be about. Now, in your uh, notes. If you have the notes, I have a bunch of verses from Titus and then some looking at Peter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip those. I'm going to give you that as homework. Take that home and look at those verses. In, in Titus, Paul is just saying that, uh, good works you're to be a model of, you're to be zealous for, you're to be devoted to good works. And then throughout the book of Peter, it seems he's obsessed with doing good. He talks about doing good over and over again. And why are we to do good? Not to earn our salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. But then back to verse 12, he makes it clear. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
As we live among the Gentiles, uh, remember Gentiles in this context, those who are not part of the church, those who are not saved, some will speak evil against us. Some will look for anything they can find in our lives to call us evildoers. I don't know how many times in recent weeks I've heard radio, even some people, equate those who are not being vaccinated with evil Christian religious fanatics. Just an example. And this isn't new. In Peter's day, Christians were accused of being evil because they were forsaking the pagan gods and the religious practices of their ancestors. But Peter gives a way to combat these accusations of evil. And it's not brilliant rhetoric. It's not defending your actions. It's by doing good deeds. As you live among unbelievers who are accusing you of being evil for whatever reason, do good. Do good to them. Do good to your accusers. Love your enemies and pray for them. I've heard that somewhere. Care for the sick. Help those in need. Do good works so that people will glorify you. Is that what Peter said? No. Okay, so just checking. You're listening up here. No, he says that, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I'm not exactly sure what the day of visitation is. Read a number of things about it, some different opinions. It may refer to the future day of judgment when Christ returns, or the day when God visits a person individually through an encounter with the gospel. But what I am sure of is that when uh, Christians do good deeds, some Gentiles, non-Christians, will see those good deeds and be led to glorify God. And what I think that means, how that happens, is that your good deeds draws them to Christ. They will see who you are and what you do, and they will want it. They'll ask you questions about your hope. They'll turn from, uh, uh, they'll, it'll cause them to turn from their sin and turn to the Lord Jesus for salvation. And then they too will be able to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called them out of darkness and into His marvelous light. So Peter's point is, when when we who are beloved sojourning exiles do good works among the Gentiles, some will see and turn to the Lord and glorify Him. How many of you guys have ever taken a class on evangelism? I've had several myself, and usually the focus is what? How to answer the questions in such a way that people will be convinced. Well, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Be prepared to answer with hope, but don't forget the main tool we have in evangelism is doing good deeds, living out who you are in Christ And to be clear, Peter didn't invent this idea. He got it from his master, Jesus, who in the Sermon on the Mount said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, Jesus says, it's through our good works that God will be glorified. 
So if our purpose, and if you're not convinced of this, uh, I'm sorry, we can talk later. So if your purpose, my purpose, our purpose is to glorify God, and it's through our good works that God is glorified, then doing good works should be at the top of our priority list, right? I mean, we should be chomping at the bit. I hate to say this because now I'm going to have to sign up and do something. We should be chomping at the bit to sign up with Mike Kane because those are some serious good works. I mean, driving to LA, I assume it's LAX, right, Mike? It's not Ontario? Because I was with you until I realized, oh, this is LAX. Man. <sighs> you know, I, my daughter-in-law is coming in in October, and we were really seriously uh, considering, we'll pay the extra $100, come to Ontario, because so we can... So, anyway, where was I? Sign up. Good teeds. That should be the top... Mike Kane and Kathy here are giving you an opportunity to glorify God. I mean, the, the Randy's example. You know, God, you know uh, whether everybody comes to Christ or not, I don't know. But God is glorified. You provide, op, you're, you're given opportunities to glorify God. Let us seek to live lives and model honorable conduct for which Peter is calling us. Let us abide in our identity knowing that we're loved by God, knowing that our true life is in Him, that we're only passing through this world, knowing we're no longer connected to the things of this world, and therefore we must abstain from fleshly passions and instead devote ourselves to the works of God, to the good works He calls us to and that He created us for. Why? For His glory. And for our good. Because those go together. If you're glorifying God, remember the part, uh, uh, these, these fleshly things, they wage war against your soul. And that's not good for you. So if you stop doing that and start seeking to do good deeds and glorify God, it's going to be good for your soul. Good for you. And so what does this honorable life filled with good deeds look like? Well, we have ISI opportunities, and then Peter is going to lay out for us in the rest of his letter, or at least most of the rest of his letter, he'll continue to inform us of how we're to live for God's glory. In weeks to come, we'll see how we're to live in relationship to our government and our society, how we're to live in relationship with those who have authority over us, how we're to live in our family and our marriages. And let me give you a warning as we close. Uh, driving to LAX is easy peasy compared to some of the things Peter's going to ask us to do. So be prepared. What we'll find will not always be easy to accept. Maybe you should read ahead uh, the rest of the letter there and God, oh, okay, that's what, that's what it means. And pray that you'll be receptive and so we will need to keep in mind that what Peter has said and what he will say about how we're to live is not designed for our earthly comfort, but for the glory of God and our eternal good. So would we pray, would you pray with me to that end? Father God, 
I pray for us. I pray we would be people who live, who abide in our identity. We would know we are loved by you. We would know we don't belong here. And out of that, we would become people who, uh, who aren't connected to the things of this world, that we would abstain from the fleshly things of this world, the things that are seeking to destroy our soul, Father. And instead, we would devote ourselves to being people of good works. Not for our own glory, but for your glory, Father. We pray for your, that your glory would shine forth, that you would give us opportunities to do good works, that you might be glorified and honored in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.